wilding, your mind and spirit. Uh, some of you I know have a copy of my Bathing in the Pays Breath book. And uh, within that, I'm not sure if it's in the e-book, but certainly in the printed book, I have a story of the handsome frog. And if you might recall last week uh, when I was doing water folklore, I made reference to the guardian of the hazel by the well, Hinderdin, um, Hind, an origin of the pantomime. Look behind you, because he was there to protect the hazel tree and to protect from people coming up and grabbing the hazelnuts before they were ripe, because they had to be there for the salmon of knowledge and generally for fair play, I, I suppose. I didn't mention it last week, uh, is the, um, well, at the end of the earth. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is uh, the story. That's the story as it translated in the uh, Gaelic-speaking area. And it's where the Grimm brothers picked up the story and uh, when they rewrote it, it became both Cinderella and the Frog Prince. But in the old Scottish story, it, the same basis was there. It was um, a chieftain had lost his wife, probably to some kind of plague. It's not made uh, very clear. He has a daughter. Uh, the chieftain ends up wooing and gets married to a woman who's got two daughters whose husband who died in battle, I gather. And the two daughters were really cruel to the chieftain's uh, daughter who was portrayed as being timid. But she loved uh, going into the woods, and in those days you would have just walked outside the chieftain's home, fortress, or whatever it was, and there was the woods, and she would be uh, playing there. And the story is there that uh, she did meet up uh, with a frog, and through the frog she understood that the spirit of her mother was inside the hazel tree, which was towering over uh, the well at the end of the earth, and uh, dropping its nuts uh, when wild. So when Grimms took this away and they split it up, either one was the Frog Prince, and they had trouble with this Frog Prince because this was in Victorian times, and they had to come out with various releases of this because the Victorians weren't happy with it. Well, you might know the story well where step-sisters uh, from the stepmother, uh, they used to play tricks on the little girl and uh, would give her challenges and one of the challenges was to go and collect water from the well using a sieve so she went to the well and there was the frog and the frog said ah look i can put i can spread some mud over it and we'll put it out of the sun to dry and you can carry the water and because she achieved that uh, the uh, father said okay this is fair play um because the the frog had asked well, could I, uh, in return for this, come round to your castle for dinner one night? Uh, the daughter's father, of course, was a uh, king in the stories, said, you know, well, it's an honour, you know, it's very patriarchal at the time. It'd be an honour that you have to accept this exchange. So the, the frog came along and the frog was very gluttonous. And, uh, and then after the meal, we have the episode where the frog 
joins uh, the princess uh, in her bed. Now, how do you portray that one? The first portrayal of that was uh, that it went on for three nights. Of course, with these stories, there has to be the threes. And so the frog was in the bed and uh, somehow she got to understand that uh, from the beckoning of the frog that if she uh, could release him in some way, if she could open up the frog in some way, out would pop the prince. So we have these original scenes where she threw the frog up against the wall, there was blood and guts, and out comes this prince. Of course, the Victorians thought that was too violent, so they had to scrub that version. Then in the next one, uh, on the first night before they go into bed, she kissed the frog, frog becomes the prince, and he did that every night. So there she was in bed with the prince for the three nights. Victorians, oh no, 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 that's fornication, that's that, unmarried, this is sinful, can't do that. So of course that version had to be scrapped. And finally they had to settle to the idea that uh, just the frog laid there with the princess each night and then on the third night she kissed and, and automatically turned into a prince. Made it very simple, very acceptable. But the thing about that was, uh, as in a lot of the Grimm stories, is that once the prince was there, and even in Cinderella, uh, the prince at the ball, the whole story ends up with them living happily ever after, which meant they kind of stayed in the castle, they had all these servants beckoning to them, and they had gluttonous food, they had the best of everything, living happily ever after. Is that your sense of living happily ever after? I don't really uh, get that one myself. Um, one of the things that's going to come up after this lockdown is Ireland's quite famous for its island hotels and there's going to be uh, for a day or two, there's, uh, the first day or two of opening, there's going to be some really special offers. I think uh, Kilrone and, and Loch Rin, which quite near here, are offering this already uh, very low cost and it's about the only opportunity that anybody well most people can get into a castle hotel and experience a bit of the castle life in a bit of fantasy uh, they could be like the frog or uh, the frog prince or the, be like the princess they could be like that but could you live the rest of your life uh, like that it's great at the time but the one thing I've done this, I mean, I've been Ashford Castle, been Locker Inn on very special low rates because the regular rates, it could be as much as a thousand a night and there's a lot more different things we would love to do with a thousand euros than spend a night in the castle. And the one thing with these castle hotels, they're always surrounded by some of the best native, ancient native woodlands that we actually have in Ireland. Uh, Ashford Castle, for instance, you're right into the Kong Wood, which is tremendous, it's huge. Or you can catch a boat over to Intergall Island, which is a lovely native forest island, full of stories and antiquity. And you can go for a swim there, there's a lovely little beach. So. It's funny, if I go to the castle, what do you want to do? Go out into the woods. So in the Bathing in the Fae's Breath book, I, I kind of looked at this. What is this happily ever after? How is this story really supposed to be portrayed? What, is, what are we being lied to? What are we being educated into with this? Because Grimm's 
Uh, they made witches ugly and nasty and dangerous. They had slimy frogs and tried to encourage us to be suspicious of frogs uh, because the sliminess was somehow dangerous and evil. And the woods themselves being dark and horrible is where you get bit, eaten, disappear and uh, very dangerous places. It's best to live happily after ever after in the safety of the stone walls of the castle. So I started looking at the figures. What about the witch? Take the witch. Oh goodness me. Is a witch an evil person? A person who knows the behavior of the weather, of the animals, of the herbs, and is a healer, has this incredible relationship, and is part of the perhaps of the woodland you might not even notice the presence of a witch because she is part of the trees the flowers and the animals that are around is as if she has morphed in and out of it and just makes the appearance when she needs to then what about the frog the frog was it really a frog now in the uh, handsome frog i use the imagery of there's the woodland and each side of the woodland there's two different castles you've got the castle where the princess came and was portrayed as a naive meek and obedient princess very patriarchal story the suppression of the women's feelings that they're all kind of simple and don't know better that type of thing and then in the other side of the wood there was this prince a part of another family, another sort of chieftain family. And uh, with the curiosity, as I say, like when I get a cheap bed and breakfast in a castle hotel, after breakfast, off into the woods, maybe the prince was curious as uh, and young, you know, what is in these woods? So he goes into the woods and at that time finds what is called the ugly, crowdy witch. He's actually a beautiful young woman. Uh, incredibly beauty and the beauty is not only of the woman but the beauty of who she is the beauty of how she is part of the wildness and that comparison to the conservatism and the regulation and the habit uh, and the code of ethics I suppose and etiquette of being in the castle suddenly this prince might have found himself in the surroundings that became a kind of sanctuary for him and, not, and in that sanctuary was this beautiful woman and he might have ended up married to her or certainly in some kind of union but in order to live in the woods with her he would have gradually dispensed of his so-called fine clothes and he would have adapted to clothing that would have been essential for the woodland and because the woodland can be damp and humid then it's as if the clothes that we would be wearing would be slimy as well and so would it be as he's by the well maybe watering himself washing his clothes while he's wearing them and he's kneeling there would he look like a frog that's the question that I ask so the I suppose the point of the story there is an introduction to this idea of rewilding ourselves. And what is that? Rewilding our mind and spirit. We get very excited when we read articles and books on the idea of leaving part of our garden wild to, we call it, you know, nature as if it's something completely separate. Or projects 
that join up hedgerows and woodlands and spinneys and uh, so that wildlife can move along corridors. This is a sort of dream that one day that there'll be a corridor all the way from Dublin to Sligo so if a squ squirrel ever wanted to it could swing from trees all the way from Dublin to Sligo which it certainly couldn't do now. But before any of that is possible and before we can really apply ourselves the important thing I believe is dissolve the barriers that's between ourselves and the, the ego that we've formed and actually how to become an interactive part uh, of what we call nature again. I think I brought it up in other Sunday sessions that um, we talk a lot and a lot of meditation and uh, mindfulness people talk about the idea of connecting with nature and that kind of irritates me because we are always of nature, we're part of nature, we're born into nature. What we seem to do is deny that we are part of nature and that's what makes us feel separated and so it's as if we're tiptoeing back into nature as if our egos are so precious. So how do we sort of disband that whole ego? Oh boy, can't that, that to a lot of people that can be a, a no-no and a very painful and very confusing experience to actually be part of nature. Uh, I was a mature student in the, 30, uh, in the 80s, was it 80s? Yeah, it was, 80s. I was in my 30s and uh, I was doing food science because I qualified uh, in herbalism quite a bit and uh, so I thought of the idea of how can we actually use food in a wider way rather than the idea of herbs as a cure? Uh, so I was looking forward to the studies but on the first day you entered into the university the, the Dean was saying in the first lecture, now some of you might be here thinking that what you're going to do is learn how to be a greater part of nature. No. What we are here to do is learn how to control nature. And if anybody is not willing to do that, you might as well leave now. The degree is not for you. Well, I actually stayed on. Um, it was reluctant, but I thought, well, I can learn from the opposition because how can I be effective in what I want to do if I don't know where this opposition stands? And it was well worth taking uh, that degree. But there is this attitude, there's us and there's nature and it's very important to change that attitude before we can actually rewild. We can't be a sort of alternative exterior God admiring, oh look at that wild patch over there and we're on the outside of it. We should be inside that rewilded patch and actually rewilding themselves. And like a comparison to that story, the idea of the prince in the castle is exterior to the woodland and the forest. Did anybody see um, uh, Book of Kells, the wonderful animation, one of my favorite movies? And that brings that in. Uh, what was the lad that was learning the um, scribing skill and 
Columkill gave him the secret of how to be part of nature and how to be part of the writing. And he went into the wood and he joined up with the Ashling. And all that time, the abbot was trying to stop saying, oh no, the wood is, is an evil place. You've got to be Christian and stay here, all that sort of thing. But if you're in sanctuary, and I'm going to be covering this a lot more next week because it's garden sanctuaries, is being in, when you're in a rewilded place, not only are you allowing the rest of nature in, more birds come in, more bugs, more butterflies, more moths, more wildflowers, everything in nature comes back again. And it's not complete because if it was complete, there would be things like, well, we don't have tigers and lions and snakes, but if they were, they're entitled as well. So in a way we could be sitting amongst the rest of nature and there's something there that might want to eat us up and poison us and toxic. Fortunately in Ireland you can do that and there's no harm. But once you're in that sanctuary of re this rewilding, the rewilding of yourself I regard as being a state of recharging, realigning, and rebooting ourselves and it's a wonderful therapy a wonderful tonic because I believe it dissolves away a lot of mental issues uh, a lot of depression a lot of frustration it's an incredible boost for any emotional physical and mental health it's something that's very essential to us by rewilding I'm certainly not talking about us returning to being hunter-gatherers um, we are certainly descendants from what we might regard as super beings. How did these people, these hunter-gatherers, survive? You know, I couldn't just go into the woods and uh, survive. Uh, but even those people in the woods, they had the creative minds that us humans have today. The intelligence was exactly the same. Uh, but humans always use the resources that are around them. If someone invents something, and it's made available, then we started using them. So if there's a car, we drive off in a car. And these ancient uh, hunter-gatherers, if they were in the woods and suddenly found a car, they would use it. So there was nothing different in the intelligence. Uh, and in a way, they were farmers. If they would find a source of food, if it was grown food, they would farm it. They wouldn't start planting things, but if you found a wonderful place of garlic, of strawberries, of hazelnuts, then you would perhaps probably clear around that so that what you want to use uh, can be expanded. So there was a lot of creative thought and management because us humans, that's what we do. That's what we do as part of nature. For some reason, that's perhaps what we're here to do. But the important thing is not separating from that, not denying that we are part of nature. And I think we, it's such a tonic uh, if we can part of that. Some occupational therapists, even when I was in rehab after a stroke, they say it's so important to spend a, a certain amount of time every day uh, outside, outside in the wild where possible, that at least 10% of your day should be outside. Now, being outside for 10% of the day is 2 hours 24 minutes, roughly 2 and a half hours. When we start looking at that, oh, have I got time for two and a half hours? Well, if you haven't, there's something seriously wrong in your lifestyle, I would suggest. Uh, but that is essential uh, for this recharge, regeneration. So think about it. Where is your green space? Where is your retreat? When's the best time to go into that 
retreat, that place perhaps is wild, hopefully is wild, where you rewild yourself. Well, the early morning, uh, surprisingly, is, for some, is the best time. And I try to do a bit of that myself because it's, for some reason, uh, after rising from sleep and when it's dawning, uh, that's when a serotonin uh, hormones can be uh, the most active and build up. And then we can go back for a nap, no problem in that, but build that serotonin. And then I suppose when we're talking about the three enchantments of the bard, that's the jauntry time, a time of joy, uh, a time of sort of upliftment. And then for the rest of the day, we're dealing with people and situations and that could get into our jauntry time, our uh, melancholy time and stress time uh, causes them. But if that serotonin is up, it helps us to deal with that. But if our serotonin is up into a great level and then it comes to the end of the day to chill out, to rest, to sleep, then that serotonin, the excess, has turned into melatonin hormones and we rest and we dream and we go into a wonderful sauntry uh, period. Many of you here uh, are probably members of a lovely group, or at least got the book, uh, We Are the Ark, uh, which is a wonderful vision uh, by Mary Reynolds. A-A-R-K, Acts of Restorative Kindness. So you say safe havens, you build a rewild, then they're not just for us, because uh, we are of nature, and that's the one thing that uh, Mary Reynolds emphasizes, that we are the Ark. She, she does recommend, leave a part of your garden uh, for wild. Don't make it all alone, just allow that part. Because that's not only going to be a sanctuary, as I've mentioned already, for wildness to come back in, the plants, the butterflies, the birds, uh, wild animals, even the foxes, and uh, around here, the pine martins. <laughs> uh, but uh, let the land be what it wants to be rather than what we control it to be. And we have to share with it. Now, up until recently, there's been quite a concern that our gardens have got to be neat and tidy. I think in the last few years we've relaxed from that, but sometimes it's difficult. And one of the experiences I had when I lived in Florida in the USA, it didn't matter if you were rural, you had these clipboard guys come around. I never saw a woman do it. It was always clipboard guys. They're always dressed in darks, which is ridiculous for Florida. And they're there to actually measure the untidiness uh, of your actual lawn and your garden. In fact, there was regulations about how high your grass could be. And if it was over that height, you'd get a fine. Absolutely ridiculous, this sort of control and emphasis on neat and tidy. And of course, the school system goes through this. It's how to get people ordered and uh, box shape and <laughs> uh, highly conservative and, um, and neat and tidy. So people, in a way, they, they have lawns and they have neat flower beds. They keep it neat and tidy. Not because they passionately want to do that. Sometimes it's to, supposedly to look good to others. Who others going past say, oh, that's boring. Uh, <laughs> and probably as the case in Florida, so you don't get fined. But I think those days have gone because there's uh, 
I gather in the USA and certainly around Europe, that even the local count in the urban places, the councils are allowing roadsides to grow wild flowers, to go wild. So while uh, the rewilding is actually catching on as a culture, thank goodness. So there's no shame anymore in not having a neat and tidy garden. It's not essential. In fact, the other way round, being what was once called a messy garden, is the is the way to go. And when we have a messy garden, what we have is a culture of biodiversity, which I was talking about a couple of sessions ago. Now, uh, one thing I was reminded of, and I'm often reminded by other speakers, uh, I was watching an interview with and uh, St. Ledger, and uh, I came up with, I think in, in a recent session about how in Ireland, uh, the people here, uh, they are descendants from being woodland people, the people from Iberia, Galicia, the whole origin of the Gaelic word is that of people of the woods. So we are of woodland people, the majority by nature. We are, uh, uh, I've talked to people in the US, ah, the prairies are where we're supposed to be, the coasts are where we're supposed to be, beside the water is where we're supposed to be. Well, certainly there are tribes that are born into those conditions, into those cultures. But Ireland that was once an entire forest, the whole island, and a lot of Europe, that's really, uh, that's uh, where we've descended from. And uh, to me, uh, the confusion with that is, um, is the ancient stories of the Tour de Donan. And uh, the stories of those being fairy folk, the mystery is, well, why is a lot of their stories about clearing the forest cultivating the land, a sort of genocide, so they can bring in their farming methods, which really ancient genetics of how they had altered animals and how they had altered gra uh, grasses to become cereals, all this. This is what they did in the land when they lived on the top of it. And then along uh, come these um, Minoans, uh, descendants of uh, Beer, uh, the the half-hazel guardian uh, who's uh, like uh, the Dadan and they had Danu and there they are the people of the forest and I'm not going to go into the full story but of course uh, through agreement they drove the two of the Don and the fairy folk underground where there was a complete change they were no longer trying to organize the underground they showed their presence by pushing up hawthorns so where there's hawthorn trees, don't touch. That's definitely an area to leave, to be rewilded. You don't touch that. That is where the fairies are commanding uh, as a safe haven uh, for the birds, for the insects, for the moths, the butterflies, and even for foxes and badgers, where they can actually hang out and be safe. That is their sanctuary. What a turnaround. So I find the Tour de Donan story a little confusing and the Malaysian ones, it just seems uh, incredibly natural. So uh, I'm nearly running out of the half hour here. I'd say the most important thing to think of is that rewilding is, rewilding our mind, rewilding our spirit, is giving up the illusion of our belief in control and in tidiness 
And there's so much frustration and stress in trying to keep things neat and tidy, isn't there? Do you agree? That you look back, was it worth the effort? I know myself when it's beautiful like this, um, uh, the first thing I'm going to do is get out of bed and work on the garden and enjoy and embrace the garden. This is my sanctuary. The washing up and the cleaning up can, can wait. You know, that is kind of going to be a time waster. It's going to be a sort of a life waster. Of course, it does get done eventually, uh, according to safety. But get rid of that illusion of being so organized, of living in a castle, in the bubble of a castle. Uh, away with that. If I could sum this up, I would say that rewilding is reclaiming the inner truth, the inner voice uh, within ourselves. And... Uh, for some people, that's incredibly uncomfortable. And the thought of it, extremely painful. The idea of closing down the bubble of our ego, uh, of being the up-and-coming, uh, what do they call them in Instagram, um, the people that earn a fortune and are covered with makeup and fashion clothes and fancy hats, um, Oh, I can't remember the term. It shows how much I'm on Instagram. Uh, but they, they try and draw people into this sort of fashion. Influencers, that's it. So do you want to live your life as an influencer and trying to control the standard and, you know, being all stiff as, just in case you actually crease yourself or that the, uh, the, if you turn, you put a crease in your top or, or the crease in your trousers disappears around the side. Don't worry about it. Be messy. Be rewilded. Uh, that is a fantastic thing to do. Overall, I think chaos is our journey home. And next week, uh, it is going to be uh, the blooming. It's a bloom replacement. So it's going to be our um, garden sanctuaries. And um, I'll continue with this. And the rewilding as far as the garden goes. So it's going to have a connection as I like to close this off with a, a poem. And this is not my own, but it, it really sums it up. This is something that you can hear, ponder over, and take away with you. This one uh, is actually called Rewilding. I got it off of uh, Medium. And this is by a Sarah, Sarah Carbonel. So this sums up what I've been trying to say. And I've gone over the half hour, but this is only a couple of minutes. When we were born as babes, we were brought into this world wide, wide-eyed and wild-wandering. We brimmed with a thread, thirst for life, so strong that the raw desire to talk, touch, breathe seemed almost unbearable. Our first steps sent waves of shock and awe coursing through our bodies and the shoelaces we failed to tie weighed upon our hearts. As we grew older, we were taught to behave. We were taught not to cry, not to scream in public. We were taught to sit still in class. We were taught to do as we were told, or we would be punished. Maybe somewhere along our life's quest, we forgot how to cry. We forgot how to scream. We forgot how to let our bodies dance like the soft sensual animals 
that we long to be. Our hearts ache, our feet yearn, our skin crawls to remind us of our liveliness and of life knocking at our doors, enchanting us to come out to play again. So that was rewilding our mind and spirit. I hope you enjoyed that. I wasn't far over the half hour, but enjoy your time. Chill out, relax, rewild, enjoy your sanctuary. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>